He uses Elisha as his whipping boy or his scapegoat for his anger due to the predicament that they were in. He's seeing all this and it's killing him inside and he's blaming it on Elisha. It's because of that, that man of God. And isn't it true the flesh rarely condemns itself? Every creature's unique in a song that it sings All exclaiming, indescribable, uncontainable You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name You are amazing God Oh Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with senior pastor and teacher Rob Kellogg. The king of Israel was deeply grieved and angry, but not with himself, with Israel, or with their sin. The king was angry against the prophet of God, and he not only blamed Elisha for the Syrian invasion, he also blamed God. He said, Surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? The king of Israel was honest enough to admit that his real anger was against the Lord. Now let's join Pastor Rob's teaching, already in progress. And he tore his clothes because of that horrible situation that was happening to them. And perhaps he remembered what God had said a long time ago in the book of Leviticus. And I want you to write a couple scriptures down next to this. It's in Leviticus chapter 26, but specifically verse 29. And write down also Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 49 through 53. Deuteronomy chapter 28, 49 through 53. But first let me read to you Leviticus 26. Now, uh, or 27, I'm, or 20, yes, Leviticus, tw- <laughs> Leviticus 26, verse 27 through 29. I'll just read it to you. This whole entire chapter in Leviticus is, is, is God basically upbraiding the children of Israel for their disobedience and their idolatry. And this is just one part of it. And perhaps the king of Israel, Joram, is probably, maybe he's thinking, maybe something is clicking in his mind when he sees these women arguing over their sons about who's going to cook their son next. Because it said in Leviticus 26, verse 27, And after all this, if you do not obey me, the Lord says, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chasten you seven times for your sins. And here it is. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. This is the judgment that you are going to experience if you deny me and disobey me. You're going to be in situations where you're going to be forced to do these things. And what we just read is actually a fulfillment of that prophecy. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 49, it says, and again, the context of this particular passage is what would be happening when Babylon uh, comes against Jerusalem. But notice what he says. It's a very similar thing. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar 
From the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly, nor show favor to the young, and they shall eat the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land until you are destroyed. They shall not leave you grain or new wine or oil or the increase of your cattle or the offspring of your flocks until they have destroyed you, and they shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down throughout all your land, and they shall besiege you at all your gates throughout all your land which the Lord God your God has given you, and you shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you. That's pretty horrible, isn't it? That was God's way of saying, if you continue to disobey me and continue to serve other gods, this is what's going to happen to you. He told them hundreds of years prior, this is what's going to happen. And lo and behold, it does. And it did. It happened here in the passage that we're looking at in 2 Kings 7. And it also happened when Babylon came against Jerusalem. They laid a siege to them for 20 years. Did you know that? In 606, they began the siege. And it wasn't until 586, 20 years later, that they finally go in and, and burn the place down. And take captives. And during that time, that 20 years, there was at least three deportments of Jews. Daniel and uh, Ezekiel being among those. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being sent away to Babylon as captives. But this is the judgment. So not only would Israel be judged by another nation, but conditions in a siege would deteriorate so quickly. The famine would be so great that people would eat their own infants in order to stay alive. And, you know, if you think about it, an infant is not going to last as long as an adult because of the, the nutrition that they need so desperately. So a child w- would starve quicker than an adult. And so now they got a, a decision to make. Well, do we continue? And th- this is really hard to talk about, right? I mean, this is really the unthinkable. And think about this, that God allowed that. God allowed that. And then I think about what God has allowed me to go through, and somehow I can say within my heart, God, you're not fair. (laughs) You're not fair. I live in America. I shouldn't have to go through this stuff. And he's like, well, I let my own people eat their own babies because of their sin. So what's what's your problem now, Mr. Kellogg? I allow you to go through some discomfort and you're already crying and complaining to me. And I've, the first century church has gone, gone through things that are just unthinkable. And yet I'm crying because I don't get my Dunkin' Donuts coffee in the morning. And I have at times cried because I haven't had my coffee in the morning. But anyway, this is serious stuff. It's serious stuff. So then he said, uh, so now the king of Israel is so mad, he says, God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. This sounds awfully like what Jezebel pronounced against Elijah. Do you remember that? These are the words of Jezebel. It's in 1 Kings 19, verse 1 and 2. 
And Ahab told, and this is after the Elijah had vanquished the 450 prophets of Baal. And then it says, and Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. She sent a message and she said, so let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So filled with rage and anger. And it's interesting, too, that Jezebel and Ahab, they served the same God as Joram several, you know, years later, several, several years later. Served the same God. Joram, he's serving the same God. He never, they never ceased serving Baal. And even though Joram, the king of Israel, piously wore sackcloth, this sign of mourning and repentance, it seemed that uh, it was all in vain because of his hatred toward Elisha, God's servant. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting how it's easy for us to go through some kind of outward sign of repentance when inwardly there's, we are unchanged. But we like to put on the show. We like to put on the external so everybody can see us. And they're like, oh, he's so, he's so holy. And deep in his heart, he's still harboring hatred. Do you see the, the hypocrisy of the whole thing? He's wearing sackcloth because of what's happening. And now he's... He wants the head of God's servants. It's like his repentance means nothing. You might as well take off the sackcloth and put it aside and wear your normal clothes because you're just a hypocrite, Joram. But it doesn't stop him. It doesn't stop us. And the Bible calls this worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says this, For godly sorrow, what does it do? It produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So when I get caught and then I'm crying because I got busted in whatever I'm doing, that's crocodile tears. That's called worldly sorrow. But when I get caught and, I'm, and I'm, I repent and I'm broken about it and I truly do repent, that's godly sorrow. Do you see the difference? One is, I really am sorry, God, that I'm such a fool. And the other one is, I'm sorry I got caught. Sorry I got caught. But there's no change of heart. A person who gets caught and there's no change of heart, that's worldly sorrow. But David had godly sorrow, didn't he, when he murdered Uriah and had the affair with Bathsheba, he cracked like an egg. He did. He was a man after God's own heart because he never did it again. And David, unlike his son Solomon, never had a problem with idolatry. Notice that? He always served God, even though he made some pretty horrible mistakes. And yet, David is in glory. You're going to meet him one day. I can't wait for that. I'm looking forward to that. But Elisha, verse 32, was sitting in his house, and the elders with him. And the king sent a man ahead of him, but before the messenger came to him, he said to his elders, Do you see how this man, uh, son of a murderer, has sent someone to take my head? And so, you know, they block the door, and, and, and then the king comes, and the, mas- and the servant, or the messenger comes, and while he was talking with him, there was the messenger. And the king said, Surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And You know, this is kind of a strange verse, but it might better be put this way. Should I not now surrender to the Syrians and then slay the prophet who has so long deluded me with vain hopes? That's really what he's saying. And it's kind of an an unusual wording there. But the king was obviously despondent at the end of his rope. Have you ever been to the end of your rope? 
when all your hope is faded and you're just discouraged and you're just like, you know, I can, you know, whatever. I don't even care if I die today. Lord, would you strike me dead? There's been times that I've even asked that in the last four years. <laughs> At night, I'm just like, Lord, just, just kill me. Do me a favor and just end my life. Because you get so discouraged, you get despondent at times, and you're just like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm done. But now Joram is blaming Elisha for this calamity that's come upon Israel. Jor- Joram, the king of Israel, is thinking, if Elijah would only have allowed me to kill the Syrian army when, they were, when we had them surrounded in Samaria, so Joram needed someone to blame instead of, instead of taking the responsibility of his own idolatry and leading the people of Israel into idolatry, he uses Elisha as his whipping boy or his scapegoat for his anger due to the predicament that they were in. He's seeing all this and it's killing him inside and he's blaming it on Elisha. It's because of that that man of God. And isn't it true the flesh rarely condemns itself. It will look and it'll blame others first. Not me. It's your problem. You're the reason that I did what I did. The devil made me do it. The blame game. It started back in the Garden of Eden. Remember in Genesis 3? It says the Lord called Adam. Listen to this. This is, this is comical. This will actually make you laugh. At least I think. If you're sick like I am. Um, it says, then the Lord called uh, to Adam. This is in Genesis 3, verse 9. The Lord, called, uh, the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Of course God knew where he was. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Hmm, we haven't talked about that, Adam. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And then the man said, the woman you gave me, she gave of me of the tree, and she ate it, and she gave it to me. So God looks from Adam, he looks over at Eve, and then Eve says, what is, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent, he deceived me, and I ate. Hello, 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 hello. So now you've got Adam blaming his wife, his wife blaming the serpent. Poor serpent. Satan is standing there going, (laughs) and it was his fault. It all started with him. But the blame game, boom, boom, boom. And God pronounces judgment on each of them, starting with Satan, then to the woman, and then to the man. But the blame game is nothing new. And so... Joram is blaming Elisha for all of this calamity. And then in verse seven, uh, excuse me, verse one of chapter seven, then Elisha said, "Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord: Tomorrow, about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be for a shekel, and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria." In other words, this this siege, this famine that everyone is going through, is not going to last. In fact, it's going to be done by this time tomorrow. There would be deliverance, and there would be salvation. And so remember the officer uh, whose hand the, the, the uh, king leaned on, uh, the, king of, um, the king of Israel, the man of God says, look, if, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And Elisha said to him, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And it's amazing to me how the Lord just immediately spoke this prophecy of, against this man. And something that we don't always understand is what God is doing in a person's life. The Lord may have been dealing with this officer for quite a long time. 
The Bible doesn't tell us. It, it doesn't give us all of the history of this man. But there was a reason why God dropped the hammer so quickly. From our perspective, it looks like, well, what did the guy do? He was probably a saint. No, he wasn't a saint. This officer of the king of Israel, he had to be just as much of an idolater as Joram was. But God drops the hammer on him. But we don't know all the, all the history of this man. But I do know one thing. We can trust God. Can you trust God? Is he or is he not a good judge? He is. He's a good judge. And I'm so glad. He's the only fair one in all of the universe. He is the best judge. Would to God that God would show up in every courtroom in America. <laughs> Everyone's saying, no, I'm guilty, or I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. The Lord's not, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. You're not guilty. You really are guilty. He can, he can say it with authority and with assurance. But is anything too hard for the Lord, for him to turn hyperinflation and turn it on its head the very next day? Is God is able to change things on a dime. He's able to do it. And God, through Elisha, is going to prove again that he is far superior to the helpless and impotent God, Baal, that Joram and his forefathers and all of Israel have worshipped. And we're going to see that into the next chapter. So let's look at uh, verse 3 now. And let's just, uh, for the sake of time, we're just going to read it as we go. So, so now, there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And so this, we're still in, speaking of Samaria while this siege is going on. While this um, uh, famine is happening, the lepers naturally are going to be outside the walls of the city, probably in tents, living there. Nobody wants to be around them. They're out there. And there's four of them at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we're going to die also. Now, therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. They're going to feed us. They're going to take us captive. And if they kill us, we only die because we're going to die anyway. And they were just making a very logical conclusion. We're going to die here. We might as well see what they'll do. Perhaps we'll live and, and they'll feed us. So they arose at twilight, which is in the very, right as the sun is going down in the day, they rose up at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they came to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise. Notice this. The Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses. The noise of a great army. Was there a great army? No. But God caused them to hear it. So that they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. And, you know, I wonder if that, remember that army that was surrounding the Syrian army when Elisha and his servant, those guys were still hanging around. <laughs> they must have been still hanging around and God says, hey, don't go up to glory yet. I got some more work for you guys. Got another, I need to dispatch you another time. They're going to hear it, but they're not going to see it. The Lord is expert in spiritual warfare, and he's also an expert in psychological warfare. Most of the battles in, in history throughout the United States, world wars, stuff like that, there is so much of this 
in, in wartime. Psychological. There's certainly a spiritual warfare going on, but psychological warfare. And God is a master at both of them. You see it in Joshua. You see it in other times of the Bible. And um, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, and God has all kinds of things up his sleeve. He did the same thing in the life of David. Turn with me to Second Samuel chapter 5, just really quick. The Lord did the same thing uh, for David. And this was shortly, Second uh, Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. You can write that in your Bible next to this section. I'll read it to you now. But this was a battle against the Philistines shortly after David was anointed king at Hebron. And notice what it says. Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. <clears throat> Excuse me. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. And the Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord. Notice, David inquired of the Lord. That's a really great idea. He prayed to the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. I would encourage you to inquire of the Lord and encourage me to inquire of the Lord. It's always good when we inquire of the Lord. And David did. And notice, God answered him. And David says, will you deliver them? Or David says, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up. For I will doubtless deliver the Philistines in your hand. Great. David and all his men grab their glocks, and they put them in their holsters, and they take off toward the Philistines. And David went to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a, bra- a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of the place Baal-perazim. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. But notice verse 22. Then the Philistines went up once again, and they deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. And at this point, most people think, Oh, we'll just do what we did last time. Let's just do the same thing. It worked. It worked. So well, let's just do the same thing. We don't have to think about it. Let's just do the same thing. Piece of cake. We'll, we, we've done this. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. And so <laughs> the Philistines, they went up again, and therefore David inquired of the Lord, and thank God he did, because God had a different plan. Notice this. He didn't presume upon what had happened before. David inquired of the Lord. He said, um, shall I go up? And, he, and God told him, you shall not go up. But here's the battle plan, guys. Circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees. Then you shall advance quickly, for then the Lord will go out before you. Notice, he's going to go out before you and strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so, and the Lord, as the Lord commanded, and they drove them back and slaughtered them. There was no physical army there other than David and his men. But God says, I'm going to go out before you, and I'm going to totally wig their brains out. They're going to be so scared that they're not going to know which way is up, and they're going to be looking around, and try, they're going to be so confused, and I'm going to psychologically just tweak them, and they're going to be easy pickings for you. It wasn't a fair fight. And hallelujah for that. I'm all for God coming to our help, because it isn't a fair fight, because you plus God is... A majority. Unstoppable. Unstoppable. Everybody say that. Unstoppable. You plus God is unstoppable, and he is always victorious. Always. Spot on. Even when I fail, he is victorious. Never forget that. But you minus God, you better pack up and go home. 
Because it's not going to end so well for you without God. But with God with you, supermajority. That's the end of our lesson for today. But please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of 2 Kings. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140. If you would like to have an audio CD of today's message mailed to you in its unedited form, simply mention today's date when contacting our church office you can also contact us via the web by logging on to www.calvaryrochester.com. There you will be able to access a number of useful things such as information concerning our beliefs, our ministries, contact information, our location, service times, and much more. You can also download or listen to the radio and sanctuary messages free of charge from the teachings link at the top of the page. To listen to Calvary Chapel of Rochester's sanctuary messages or Truth in Christ Radio on your mobile device, just subscribe to both through Google Podcast or Apple Podcast. You're also invited to join us on Sunday and Thursdays through live streaming of our services and Bible studies. Just click on the online services link on the website. We're so glad that you could join us today. And if there is any way that we can bless you with your walk with Jesus Christ, please don't hesitate to call our church office. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. May God bless you in abundance today as you walk with him. And until next time, this has been Truth in Christ.